As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So Tracy, obviously a lot going on in crypto, but I would say the two big things are like, I guess the crypto winter, there's been some recovery, but obviously all the coin prices are way lower than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And then there's just everything going on on the regulatory side. Yeah, it's sort of a double whammy for the industry. And I guess it's hard it's it's hard to determine causality when it comes to price and extra regulation sure. coming in. But yeah, it is not a great time for crypto. Well, I would say that the historical patterns would suggest the regulators like to come in <laughs> after people have yes. lost money, after people have lost money in scams, their investments go down. So it kind of makes sense that you see the uptick in regulation right after just like the lines have been going down for a while. Right. But it does prompt these big questions about should the regulators have been more proactive? Should they have been doing things before people lost money? And then what should they do now? Mm -hmm. Anyway, we have the perfect guest to talk about this because we are going to be speaking with Brian Armstrong, CEO and co-founder of Coinbase, uh, right in the middle of all this, the preeminent American crypto exchange. So, Brian, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to ask you a question. We've actually asked um, other executives in the crypto space this question before, but I'd love to get your take on it. Um, what is yield farming and where does the return of it come from? <laughs> Well, I mean, yield farming has a little bit of a bad uh, name, I think, in this environment. Um, there was obviously with the collapse of, you know, Terra Luna and uh, BlockFi and some other firms like that. I think that's a very valid question uh, to be <laughs> asking, and I'm not sure I can even answer it on, the, on their behalf. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of other pieces of crypto that people are still excited about. And, um, you know, there's lots of things we can build beyond that. So one of the things we've talked about on the show quite a bit is this idea of crypto as kind of the ultimate momentum asset. And when money is flowing in, prices go up and everything is great. When money flows out, prices collapse quite quickly, which would seem to make the business of being a crypto exchange extremely cyclical. But one of the things that stood out from your most recent results, um, you just reported relatively recently, you talked about how you want to be profitable through the cycle, through the upturns and the downturns. Can you talk a little bit more about how you plan on doing that? Yeah, well, historically, most of our revenue has been from trading fees, which you're absolutely right. It is cyclical, and crypto has been a fairly volatile asset class um, and goes up and down. 
Now, what we've done is we've started shifting more and more of our revenue to what we call subscription and services in our mm. financials and our earnings calls. And basically what that means is things like USD coin, a stable coin. Um, that's been a nice growth mechanism for us, even in a down crypto market. Things like uh, custody fees, um, fees that we earn on Coinbase card. People are you know, using it for spending and merchant, uh, merchant commerce activity. So these things are, I wouldn't say they're 0% correlated with overall market and crypto, but they're certainly a lot less than trading fees. And that's allowing us to build a more predictable business. So we started in the industry also talking about the regulatory side. And I want to, um, you know, we'll definitely talk a lot about that. But in particular, I think yesterday I saw that Coinbase, uh, you had some new program, I think it was called the 435 program about, you know, call your congressman, like let people know that you care about uh, crypto policy. And of course, like Uber sort of famously started this strategy of like telling people on the app, like tell your local regulators you want to drive an Uber. And I, I'm going to try to ask this in the most like diplomatic way possible. And I have many <laughs> friends who are into crypto and I like many of them. But when it comes to crypto, do you want the type, the type of person who would call their congressman to tell them to do better crypto policy. Is that really the type of person that you want sort of being the voice of crypto regulation? Well, I think the average person in crypto, and by the way, there's a lot of them, you know, yeah, one, true. one in five households now have used crypto, about 50 million Americans. This is a this is becoming a major constituent of, you know, lobbying group and everything that's yeah. going to shape future elections. They want to, you know, these average people, they may not have the exact uh, solution for what the legislation should say around regulation of crypto, but they do know that they want elected representatives who are going to ensure that this industry comes within the regulatory perimeter, offers consumer protection, but also you know, allows this innovation to flourish so that it can, we can update the financial system. You know, 80% of Americans now uh, believe that the financial system doesn't work for them. It's either too slow, it has too high of fees, um, it, it doesn't, you know, nobody has equal access or not everyone has equal access to it. And it's not surprising that's the case. I mean, the technology behind the financial system is sometimes 40 years old. Mm. It's, you know, written in Cobalt and these mainframe computers. And the laws for it are sometimes 100 years old. They were created before the internet even existed, right? So it's time to update the financial system. We, I think the average voter in America is now realizing that crypto is one of the great technologies that can help right. update that. And they want their elected representatives to bring that, that legislation and clarity to the U.S. Just on the political side, I mean, Joe and I kind of alluded to this in the intro, this idea that now that we have losses and we have big scandals and the industry regulators seem to be becoming more active in the space. Can you talk to us a little bit about, from your perspective, what is it like dealing with Washington now versus, say, mm. in 2020 or 2021? Yeah. Well, I would say compared to 2020, um, many more people that I meet with in Washington are actually pretty knowledgeable about crypto now. Um, it's no longer a niche thing. I, some of the conversations I had five years ago, you know, they were very basic. Um, but most people that I speak with now actually have a reasonable understanding of crypto. Um, they, there's, there, I think there's two camps. One camp is saying, hey, in the wake of FTX, I'm afraid of being associated with crypto and I'm just going to kind of wait and see what happens because it's too dicey to even go near it. The other half of the folks I, t I speak with are saying, you know what, this is an opportunity. I'm actually, I want to be the, one of the people who helps bring this within the regulatory perimeter. And, and we can see how important that is now with the collapse of FTX. And so they're actually drafting legislation. Um, they're trying to gather bipartisan support to get some clarity going. And 
you know, I'm personally much more in favor of that latter group. So actually, I want to ask you, you know, you talk about this impulse is like, okay, in the wake of FTX, bring it inside the regulatory perimeter. And part of my question is like, why? Because mm-hmm. I look at FTX collapsing, one of the biggest, like sort of like crucial exchanges in the industry, and nothing bad happened after that. There was no fallout or no bailouts. It didn't have any spillover. So part of my thing is like, I don't want this in any perimeter because that seems to work pretty well in terms of the lessons of 2008, avoiding too big to fail. What about the argument that it's like from a sort of like structural, like, yeah, like financial contagion standpoint, regulators have done a pretty good, uh, pretty good job not letting this volatile product, this volatile industry create problems for the financial system. The let it burn strategy. Yeah. Well, you know, I would disagree with the idea that nothing bad happened. I mean, a lot of people lost yes, money. That, that's right? absolutely. And, and and I'm glad you say that because I did not. You're right. People lost their like, yes. Yeah. Uh, so there was certainly some bad act- activity there. And I think that's the kind of uh, consumer protection we're talking about. I don't I don't think there should have been bailouts or anything like that. Right. No, nothing um, in crypto is too big to fail. And it's kind of antithetical to crypto, frankly, to, you know, have a bailout or something like that. If you <laughs> the first Bitcoin block that was mined, right, had a message in it that's about right. um that, you know, chancellor on the brink of bailout. So crypto was kind of founded almost, Bitcoin was founded as a result of a reaction to the 2008 financial crisis. But I think those two ideas can come into unity. I mean, we can have, and again, I'm talking about for the centralized actors in crypto, you know, the custodians, exchanges, companies like Coinbase, it's pretty clear, everybody, generally there's broad consensus. Those should be regulated, apply some of the best practices and standards so we don't have fraud and corruption and things, you know, wash trading or AML issues. But the decentralized pieces of crypto, that's different. I mean, we need to have decentralized um, protocols so that we can have a global, more global and fair and free financial system. And that piece, you know, I don't think those are going to be regulated because there is no central authority for Bitcoin or Ethereum, for instance. What should consumer protections look like in crypto, in your opinion? And especially, you know, when I think of something like Dogecoin, you know, it's hard for me to come up with an economical use case for it. And so it's like, well, you can put all the disclosures that you want on there, but it seems highly likely that people will be losing money on that product at some point in time. Yeah. So again, I I would say, you know, the regulation and the consumer protection probably should happen with the centralized actors, the custodian, the exchange, not necessarily Dogecoin, which would be another decentralized coin, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the exchanges and the firms that are being built around, you know, custody or trading of, of things like that, they are going to have to have um, some of these best practices from the traditional financial services world. So, you know, let's have audited financials. Let's make, sh- make sure customer funds are segregated from uh, corporate funds. Um, let's make sure that there's AML KYC programs and avoid avoiding wash trading. And um, yeah, appropriate disclosures are important as well. So th- those are all just kind of good general best, best practices. But again, it's focused on the centralized players as opposed to the decentralized pieces. It's interesting. Uh, you make this distinction, obviously, between, you know, there's sort of centralized players and then decentralized DeFi stuff. You're kind of becoming a hybrid and you recently launched a, a layer two roll up to help scale Ethereum. And I'm curious, as a regulated entity and one that has to abide by like FinCEN and anti-money laundering laws, can you explain if the tension or is there any tension between, I believe these sort of like, uh, you know, roll up layer twos have some sort of centralized sequencer so that the transactions made out of them then get batched to the main Ethereum chain. Are you responsible for that? And do you hate, how do you deal with that as an regulated entity 
what if someone wanted to or tried to launder money through this layer two? Are you uh, facilitating that by putting those transactions onto the main Ethereum chain? Yeah. So earlier, you know, I mentioned that the centralized players like Coinbase should yeah. be regulated, and I and I was really referring to like you know our primary revenue stream today, which sure. is custodian exchange. But you're absolutely right. We are embracing decentralization at Coinbase. We have a number of different products and legal entities and different ones working in various areas. So we did launch this really exciting thing, a layer two solution called Base, and our goal with that is really to help. Um, provide more scalability and um, better usability for layer two solutions. So we want to get transactions in Ethereum down to you know, a penny or less and help that scale to hopefully a billion or more people someday. Um, now I think I guess the core of your question was really around um, the responsibility from a centralized, decentralized yeah. piece. And I think, you know, so base is, is uh, it has some centralized components today, but it's, it's going to be more and more decentralized over time as, as it grows. And so um, you know, I, I think we have responsibility in terms of, you know, transaction monitoring, things like that, that we have to look at in the early days. But as it decentralizes, I think that, again, the centralized actors are the ones that are probably going to have the most responsibility there to avoid money laundering issues and, and having transaction monitoring programs, things like that. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So speaking of responsibility, um, you know, there are thousands, I think, of, mm. of coins and tokens listed on, on Coinbase now. Mm, um, more like hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds. Okay. About sorry. 250. I didn't flip yeah. through all the pages, <laughs> yeah. but there's a lot. Um yeah. And you guys say that you never actually list securities, but it feels like nowadays there's so much uncertainty over, you know, you could wake up tomorrow and the SEC says this is a security or that's a security. I mean, just a, a little while ago, for instance, they were, um, I think there was an enforcement action on Kim Kardashian for unlawfully touting a crypto security. So how how can you say with confidence that you don't <laughs> list any securities when it feels like that's a very fluid thing at the moment. Yeah. So I think, look, the best thing for, for us and for the whole industry would be, here's a clear rule book. 
Everybody has to follow it, you know? And if the rules change, give us a new rule book. We'll follow that one, right? We've actually been requesting that, and we've, we filed a petition with the SEC on this. People can read it on their website. Uh, and we sort of enumerated, look, these are the ways that the current securities laws don't really address some of these underlying questions in crypto. Um, like if there is no common enterprise or centralized entity behind this thing, who, who publishes the disclosures, you know? Um, so there's, there's questions like that. Now, what we've done in the absence of that clarity, which again would be the best case scenario, is that we have created um, our own internal process to review assets. And um, we developed something, I think it has like 72, 72 points in the legal analysis and kind of one area it looks at is securities law. It also looks at compliance risk, you know, cybersecurity risk, things like that. And we've evaluated probably roughly a thousand assets through this process. Um, about 800 of them we have rejected and for various reasons, whether securities or compliance or cyber, about you know, 200, 250 or something like that we've decided to list. So, you know, I, I guess the heart of your question is what happens if the SEC comes out and says, okay, so if, if they come out and they, and they again, I'd, we're, ask, we're asking for more clear rules, right? right. So if they come out and say, um, you know, we think this asset is a security, that's great. Okay, now we have clarity. And it, assuming, you know, it's not, if it meets the legal definition, mm-hmm. it's not going too far, we would be happy to sort of update our process and our system based on that, that new information. Now, ultimately, um, if if they publish something and they say, well, we think all these assets are securities, well, that's not really our understanding of the law and of the third parties and external counsel we've worked with. And so there is a line here where I think as an industry, and it's not just us, it's these asset issuers, which are even more primarily affected, you know, they would have to say, okay, well, let's let a court decide that. Because, you know, we have to follow rule of law, so does the SEC, right? And so if they put out... Um, you know, their opinion about something, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. It just means the court ultimately has to be the decider on that. Can you give an example, not necessarily of a specific coin, but of something that you have seen in tokens that you've rejected mm. that to your mind said, nope, we cannot list this because this is a characteristic of a security? Yeah, I mean, um, there's so there's a variety of reasons. I mean, there's many prongs of the Howey test, right? I mean, um, and I don't want to get into like an in-depth legal analysis here, sure. but, you know, we, we've never done a Howey test episode. And we, <laughs> yeah. So this could be it, but no, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's multiple prongs there, right? I think, you know, if, if people are buying it primarily with this expectation of profit and it's, there's, you know, there's a common enterprise and, 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 right. So, but is there the, something in the, like, with, speaking in terms of patterns that you see within crypto projects that when you look at it's like no this team like the type of things the teams do that would say you know this token is not going to be kosher for coinbase are there things that you see in the industry where you think teams are crossing that line into i don't know whether it's the common enterprise aspect that just preclude them from at least your judgment uh being safe to list yeah, I mean, so I'll give you an, a security example, but there's others in cybersecurity yeah. and others. Um, so, you know, look, if you're if you're legitimately just trying to raise money for your company or for some project like an apartment complex or something like that, that that is a security. That's the point of securities law. There, there has to be an investment of of money in, into this thing, and for you know, in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit for the you know, based on the effort of others. So. That should exist, by the way, and we want that to exist in the world. Um, we've acquired a broker-dealer license. Mm. Uh, we, we're, it's dormant right now. We, we're, we'd like to activate it. We're working with the SEC to hopefully make that happen. Crypto is a technology that could make, you know, crypto securities could offer benefits and, and update the financial system and improve all kinds of things. T, you know, 
time to settlement and, and various things like that. So that's an example. Um, you know, if people are out there kind of really hyping these things like on YouTube and um, and the tokenomics are look sketchy and, um, you know, there's really low float and the insiders are selling it. These are all bad fact patterns. And we, those are the things mm -hmm. we try to avoid for consumer protection. Um, you know, there's other ways, there's other reasons we may reject assets too. I mean, an another example would be cybersecurity risk. So we often will um, evaluate the smart contracts for, you know, is there some exploit in this or mm. there's an ability, you know, if, if the, it, the asset issuer is not even like in a malicious thing, but an accidental thing, if they lose the key, um, everyone's funds could be swept or something like that. that that's not secure enough, right, yeah. to meet our standards. So th mm. those are examples. Is crypto um, shooting itself in the foot in some respects by like resisting the security designation? Like, is that a tacit admission that maybe there isn't a reasonable expectation of profits here? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, so, loaded question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we want actually crypto securities to exist. So we're not saying none of these things are securities, but on the flip side is not true either. It's not that all of these are securities. Both of those are inaccurate. Um, statements. And I guess the thing I would say too is that um, just an expectation of profit alone does not make something a security. It has to be, meet every prong of the Howey test is my right. understanding. So an example, you know, people might buy a Picasso painting hoping it goes up in value or buy, right. go, buy right. gold or something like that. So those aren't securities. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically Bitcoin, Ethereum and the assets that we trade on our platform today, we believe are crypto commodities. And, and it's, you know, People trade those, and some of them they want to go up in value, just like they buy gold. Um, other other times they're using it for various utility uh, aspects. You know, so I, this is sort of a, I want to get back to the regulatory question, but before I forget, can you talk for a second about how you view Bitcoin specifically? Because mm -hmm. it feels like the crypto industry, in many respects, has moved on from Bitcoin, and I'm sure your mentions on Twitter are filled every day with angry laser-eyes people that think you hate Bitcoin. But it is also true that you know you launched you launched an Ethereum layer two. I don't know if do you have a light. Do you is there a Coinbase Lightning node or do you, do you <laughs> uh, we'd like to do more with Lightning but for sure. I'm, I'm pro yet. Lightning. Yeah. So, but haven't yet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's all these issues with like funding for core Bitcoin devs, like frustration that they don't get enough and can't maintain it. What is your view towards uh, Bitcoin? I mean, I, I love Bitcoin. I, honestly, I don't really understand why um, anybody might think the opposite. I've kind of like dedicated. But people do, right? I mean, I'm not the, wrong that you. Um, there is kind of a meme. We've on all the been abused by Bitcoin maxis at one time or another, I think. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Um I, I don't know how seriously to take that. I mean, I do, I do see people say this on Twitter sometimes, but I don't okay. know if it's like a widely <laughs> believed thing. I mean, it would sort of defy credulity, right? I mean, I've kind of almost dedicated my life to like Bitcoin and helping it grow. I mean, the, literally, I read the Bitcoin white paper and then decided to quit my job and found this company. Um, now, of course, the industry has evolved into many things, right? I mean, there's lots of new innovations coming out in crypto. But yeah, I'm, I'm very pro-Bitcoin. And I think, look, I think... The, there's a very simple base case for, for Bitcoin, which is that it's the gold standard in the crypto economy. And I think that it, that'll probably always be true and it'll keep growing. Now, if things like Lightning get, continue to get traction, I think it could also become like a settlement layer. There's, um, there's people now creating NFTs in Bitcoin. And so yeah. th it's evolving. Um, I'm, as an as a operator of an exchange and custodian, um, I try to just be agnostic. I don't, I, my job is to say, is not to tell our customers which coin they should use. It is to list and make available every coin that meets our, our standards, the legal tests I discussed. And then we, we need to be agnostic. So I think some people 
because I'm not um, pro one coin or another, they, they sort of take that as like, you sure. must hate this thing, but those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, just going back to the SEC for a second, you know, we talked about how it, it, it does seem like SEC is sort of in enforcement mode and there's a chance that you wake up tomorrow and there's a bunch of new announcements. What do you think the ultimate goal is for the SEC when it comes to crypto? Do they just want it to go away entirely or are they aiming for, you know, the industry to still exist, but maybe in a in a different um, in a different way? Or a JP Morgan and City instead of <laughs> Coinbase and, yes. you know, and Uniswap? Well, I mean, I always I want to be hesitant to kind of speculate on the motives of people within the SEC. I mean, Um, I think we have a pretty good relationship with different people on the staff and commissioners. And um, I I guess the real answer is I don't know. I I suspect that there are different people with different views inside the SEC. I think it wouldn't surprise me if some people, their um, view, they actually just want it to go away. They wish this whole thing would go away. I think, I don't think, I would hope that that's not a majority view. I know it's not the majority view of of Americans and I don't see how it'd be in the interest of America or, you know, protecting consumers to wish it would go away because clearly it's not one in five households in the US are using this stuff and they're just going to use unregulated things offshore if they, if we don't get our act together in the US. So I think the majority view is more like we know that this is going to exist. We just need to bring it within the regulatory perimeter. I wish that they were doing that by just, again, publishing a clear rule book and going through a rulemaking process with industry. But um, that hasn't happened as much to date. And so, you know, if it needs to be more enforcement based and then some of this stuff gets uh, figured out via case law, I mean, that's okay too. It'll just take a little longer. Why do you think that regulatory response has so far been kind of disjointed? I think it's fair to say, like maybe disjointed or unclear. Was it a lack of resources or regulators just didn't understand the space? What was it? Maybe you can clarify. What do you mean disjointed? Well, I guess um, slow, maybe, and <laughs> unclear. You know, to your point. But this idea that you go in and ask have, them questions and right. they don't give you answers. Right. Uh, oh, man. I, <laughs> frankly, I, I, you know, I'm spending a lot more time in D.C. I'm trying to figure this out, too. It, I, perhaps I was a little naive coming in. I kind of assumed that, um, you know, when you're running a business that the regulators just give you the rules and then you just follow mm-hmm. them. You know, that would have been like, how I assumed it would work, but um, it seems to be more complicated than that. Maybe it's like there's various political motivations. There's different factions within the government who have different goals. Um, you know, p- people who've gotten legislation passed, they've told me it's kind of like a small miracle whenever it happens. You have to kind of get the House and the Senate and, and the president all aligned. And, the you know, there has to be a real impetus for it to happen. Mm. Um, I kind of believe this thing with FTX is maybe that impetus. Maybe this is our moment to finally get some clarity in the next year. Let me ask you another regulatory question, though not about, not SEC related. Um, it seems like some banks are debanking crypto companies, but it does. I do not get the impression that that is a risk for Coinbase. Do you perceive that to be a regulatory advantage for you, that smaller exchanges may have a harder time getting a banking partner in this environment? Well, look, I mean, I'd hate to consider that to be an advantage. Um, I, you know, I, we haven't had any issue with any of our bank partners. I do think that there's a there's a general um, moment in the wake of FTX where, you know, reasonably so, um, bank regulators are uh, asking tough questions and they're and they're basically coming in and saying, what are the liquidity risks if you're going to take crypto deposits? Um, you know, is it is it okay to be making loans against those deposits or are they too risky? 
And um, I think those are totally fair questions to ask. So, yeah, I don't think that we would have any kind of um, major crackdown and say, well, you can't bank crypto companies. Yeah. I haven't I haven't heard that from any anybody. And by the way, that that would be probably exceeding their authority because Congress has to make those kinds of decisions mm -hmm. about what is allowed in the economy. Um, but if they're coming in and asking questions about liquidity, I think that's probably reasonable. Quick uh, follow up on that. Um, would you or have you put any lobbying or any of your D.C. efforts towards guaranteeing or making sure that anyone provide, you know, provided other basic checks that like that crypto can't be, I guess, uh, discriminated against within the banking system? Is that an effort you've made? Well, I, certainly in our messaging and in our conversations with uh, members of Congress and the Senate, I, we have made that point to them, which is we want to just be treated on a level playing field, right? Don't unfairly penalize crypto versus traditional financial services. But, um, you know, you shouldn't like allow us to have a, a lighter weight system or anything like that either. So it's, it's a balance. Um, you know, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but I'd be curious to get your take on what happened to FTX. Like when, when mm. you know, that one week in November, I think was shocking for a lot of people um, for very different reasons, depending on who you are. But what was it like for you when, when you saw, um, you know, it, it happened so quickly. You had the Twitter exchanges and then you had a bankruptcy file, I think, filing within like seven or 10 days. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a wild week. Um, I was actually in Japan at that time, uh, meeting with our team there and talking with um, regulators and government folks in Japan. And I got a call from somebody who said, um, it's bad. Like, we think FTX is going to go down in the next 48 hours and Sam might go to jail. And I was like, okay, tell me more. What happened? And I kind of started to piece it all together. Um, you know, I had a chance to chat just briefly with Sam, actually, and CZ during that whole thing. Um, and I was just uh, doom scrolling Twitter, I suppose, like a lot of people. And I, I, the, I mean, the, really, the, that's not true. I mean, the first thing that I really thought about was, okay, what is our exposure to any of this? So we immediately went and, you know, underwrote any of our counterparties, including FTX itself, but any that might have secondary effects. Um, and then we started to think about, okay, well, this is actually quite validating of our strategy over the last 10 years of being built in the US, trying to embrace compliance, not trying to cut any corners. Um, how can we make sure that people understand that Coinbase is it's not like FTX? And I basically thought about it as there's going to be a it's going to be a black eye for the industry, but this is ultimately Coinbase stands to be a huge net beneficiary of this uh, because it's going to bring an increased focus on compliance and trust, which is what we've been doing for the last 10 years. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I want to ask a little bit about, you know, sorry, the price, crypto winter. And obviously there's been a bit of a bounce, but the bounce has basically just been like, because the NASDAQ has bounced too. And it looks, many of these coins sort of look pretty highly correlated to other risk assets. And for years, I feel like there was this case to investors that they should buy crypto for two reasons. One, it was this new uncorrelated asset class. And two, in the case of Bitcoin specifically, it was really good as an inflation protection thing. And mm-hmm. that w- and we just got, you know, we had the highest inflation in four, 40 years and Bitcoin really hasn't gone anywhere. It's flat over the last several years. And the coins all seem to, by and large, at this point, seem to more or less be correlated with like the NASDAQ or QQQ or whatever. Yeah. What is the case and what do you feel about like, so what's the new case to be made after people have the seen these, these old narratives that, the industry was pretty loud about making. I'm not saying you, I don't know, but many in the industry definitely were, have not held up in terms of like the case for investing in it. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, for, I'm just sort of laughing a little bit because, um, you know, crypto being has been roughly as volatile as the stock market recently. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I can tell you there was many years of Coinbase where people would constantly ask me, it's so volatile, no one will ever use it. And so now that it's just <laughs> on par with volatility of the stock market, um, I'll take that as a slight win, at least a step in the we right direction. We don't use Tesla shares to buy coffee either. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Well, okay. So obviously we have stable coins for right. commerce now, okay. which, which is a good uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, but let's go back to your question about um, you know, inflation hedge. Yeah. So... You know, I think there certainly was this uh, belief, and I, f- frankly, I shared this belief too, which was that um, crypto, or Bitcoin specifically, actually, this is where yeah. people, hopefully, the Bitcoin maxis kind of <laughs> align with my thinking, is that that right. that is sort of the new gold standard in the crypto economy, and it would be something that people flee to in times of uncertainty with guaranteed scarcity and things like that. Um, just you know, similar to like real estate has a, you can't make more of it, so. Um, at least the land part of it. So there is sort of a guaranteed scarcity component. It's a nice inflation hedge. Um, now, I think what happened is I, I was frankly surprised to see how quickly crypto came down in, in, an invent, in an environment of high inflation where I thought maybe the world has shifted. Maybe we're ready now where this would be considered the, an inflation hedge. It turns out we were, we were way too early for that. Now, I think my, I guess my current updated thinking on that is that we still need probably crypto is still too small a percentage of the global economy. To, it's being treated more like a growth, mm. st- uh, you know, asset or something as opposed to like a true, um, like a gold standard or something. And so, I mean, we probably need the crypto economy to grow 10x, 20x or something from here to start to have that sort of a role in the broader macro environment. Okay. Uh, you know, you mentioned stable coins there. And I just remembered w- once upon a time, um, I guess a few years ago, we had Sam Bateman Fried on and we asked him to explain to us what would happen if Tether just suddenly collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I'd, I'd be curious to get your, I, I guess in retrospect, we should have asked um, SPF what would happen if FTX actually collapsed. But in retrospect, um, can you talk to us about your impression of Tether's uh, role in the crypto ecosystem? Mm. Um, well, look, I, I'm not here to sort of criticize anybody in the ecosystem. I, I, don't, I don't really, um, I, you know, we've utilized Tether, Tether in various ways on our platform in different times. I know they've been investigated by various parties and they reached settlements and they sort of had, they got comfortable with various ways. Um, you know, look, our focus at this point has been on USD coin. We have a partnership with Circle on that. And I think that's been a, that, that I feel very comfortable saying, I, I, you know, I understand more about it and it feels it's well backed, it's one-to-one -one backed and it's audited and all these things. Um, I just don't have as much information on Tether, but I don't have anything negative to say, certainly at all. I have no, no beef with them. Let me ask you, you know, look, obviously after all this time and even well before the FTX, as you know, there's been this, there's just a lot of skepticism still to this day about crypto. And I think most, many people say, yeah, it's not, it's not going to go away, but like it's still, it's just speculation. People are just in it for the money and there's no real use case outside of maybe some niches, but like web three isn't really a thing yet. And I'm curious, like a lot of people in crypto have done fantastically well and, you know, like, uh, you know, made an extraordinary amount of money, despite the fact that by and large, these coins aren't really used for much outside of making money. And there's not a, you know, decentralized Facebook that exists. I, you know, there's a, there's a good reason why it would be nice to have one because it's sort of scary to think about like how much power is in the hands of Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg and all these people, but by and large, like nothing exists. Like when does that happen? Because there's like tons of money has been made, but when do we get like the sort of like, okay, now there's a thing that's been delivered that people will use for non-speculative purposes. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'll disagree a little bit with this idea that um, it's it's all speculation, right? Okay. I think that was probably a fair thing to say five years ago or so, but and, and there's not going to be some moment where it all flips. It's it's a gradual thing, and so we've actually tracked this inside Coinbase. You know, what percent of our active customers are doing something other than trading with crypto? And it's now over fifty percent. Um, and what's an example of that? Like, is yeah. buying an NFT something other than trading? Yeah, that's okay. an example. Um, and there's lots of other examples. I'll kind of give you a framework for how I think about how, okay. it, how it's evolved over time. But, um, you know, obviously there's people doing commerce, uh, they're doing borrowing and lending, they're, um, you know, earning money, they are um, doing things like staking. Um, and here, here's how to think about it over time, right? Okay. So the first use case of crypto was really um, a new form of money or this new asset class that got created. And a lot of the activity early on was uh, speculative, although just... I don't want to undersell that first point because by having a new form of money that is global and decentralized and guaranteed to be scarce, that, that is no small thing, right? I mean, we sort of take it for granted in the US that our currency is relatively stable, even though right. it inflates more recently. Um, most people in the world, that is a luxury they do not have. And it would be an incredible benefit to humanity if only the only thing crypto ever did was have a, a form of sound money for the world that anybody could have as long as they have a smartphone. That that's a that is a game changer. Okay, so let's not undersell that. But beyond crypto being just a new form of money, it also became new, a new type of financial services, right? DeFi, and we saw different ways for people to do borrowing and lending, and you know, commerce payments and um, staking and and various things like this. And so that that was all very good. Now the third 
realm is kind of what you touched on as being, you know, about decentralized social and everything. We call it Web3. It's, it's not only a new type of money, a new type of financial services, but a new application platform, even things that have nothing to do with financial services. And, you know, I'm pretty excited about, for instance, um, decentralized identity with, with ENS. That's a foundational component. Mm. So you, people's identity doesn't have to be sort of owned by a big tech company. Once you have decentralized identities, you can connect them in a social graph. You can make decentralized social networks. Um, you can have public profile pages with badges and accreditation and, you know, your badge, you're accessing to buildings like proof of attendance, concert tickets, like all these kind of things, um, new business models for, you know, the music industry and like, like YouTube, Spotify, you can imagine all these things being built in a new way. I can imagine them. Like yeah. to me, that's I guess the question like, is why imagine, yeah. why hasn't it happened yet? You know, we're talking. Yeah. It's been like a decade, more yeah. than a decade since the white paper. So why why ha- if this is such revolutionary technology and it's so much better than the way we've been doing things? Why hasn't the adoption been quicker? Yeah, well, I think one reason is um, the scalability of the blockchains has been one thing that we could unlock that would help mm-hmm. it move even faster. I think the usability needs to get a lot simpler, right? Mm-hmm. The average person doesn't really know what a private key is. They don't want to you know, install a Chrome extension to understand something like they, it needs to be just simpler for the average person. Um, And I guess, you know, look at the internet as an example, right? I think like the very foundational pieces of the internet might even go back to like the sixties or something, but you know, you started to see um, Telnet and like these very early, you know, types of things come together, like in the eighties, I think it was. Um, So we think of the internet as really happening from like the year 2000 or something like that. And that, again, that's by the way, you know, 23 years now, but it took a lot of foundational work to happen before that, you know, broad scalability, broadband had to happen, right? Another thing, another internet it's analogy. True crypto as well. I mean, people are working on hash cash and all those for yeah. decades in some case. I mean, the prehistory yeah. of Bitcoin is pretty long as well. Well, those were like research papers. Yeah, okay. I mean, they, you know, Telnet was like a real thing that had, I don't know how many people, okay. maybe a million people using it or something, but, um, or like that first, you know, <laughs> fiber that had to get laid in the ground yeah. and everything. But um, yeah, look, I would love it to happen faster. I mean, th- let's be honest, like the regulatory environment has not helped either. It's like there's a there's a fear in this in the United States that um, if you start a company in this space, like you're just going to be have a bunch of legal bills and, you know, subpoenas in your inbox or whatever. So that's not helping either. But I, I we can't blame it entirely on that. It's the technology needs to be more scalable, more usable. Um, and it's all happening. It's just taking a while. And I want to ask, I have one last question, and it's a Coinbase-specific question, and it's inspired by another guest that we've had on in the past, uh, Jim Chanos, who has been critical. Of, I don't know if he's ever short Coinbase, but he's certainly been critical of the company. And he says um, two things. He's like, A, how is it that in like these most incredible, some of the most incredible bull markets ever for crypto, company hasn't been profitable, but also that so much of the revenue you do make is because of the huge gap between what institutional traders on Coinbase Pro pay versus the commissions on regular Coinbase. And it's pretty easy, or at least was, to switch back and forth, but maybe people didn't realize how much cheaper one could trade just by like a few clicks on the uh, website to get over to the pro side, like how much compression is there going to be and have, you know, what do you say to the argument that retail investors have sort of gotten a raw deal compared to the more uh, more professional ones? Yeah, um, 
So I, I'm not sure I caught the first part exactly, but I think you, I mean, well, why, in, well, in 2021 is profitable during this insane bull market. Right. That's what I thought I heard you say. But in 2021, we, we were actually okay. very profitable. Um, did about $4 billion of EBITDA and grew okay. revenue 600% in 2021. 2022, we were not. Okay. Because uh, the market came down quite a lot. And we've made some really some, some cuts and adjustments to try to get to an environment where we can generate EBITDA, hopefully in any market environment. But I guess the core of your question is really around fee compression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So there, there's, a, there's a number of pieces to this. Uh, so the first is that it's true. There are differences in pricing amongst our customers. Um, if they want to trade through more of a pro interface or a simple interface, there's also a difference in pricing, of course, if, based on how much trading volume they do. There's tiers, there's tiers of that. And so I think what we've seen is there's a willingness for customers to pay basically for ease of use and simplicity and, and trust. And so, um, and, and I don't think, by the way, our fees are not really out of line with the rest of the market. I mean, there's sometimes there's firms that kind of advertise like zero fees or whatever, and um, you know, their payment for order, order flow or there's like different things that you're paying a fee one way or another. It's sometimes um, not always obvious, right? One other thing I'll mention is that we actually we actually launched something called Coinbase One, which is like an Amazon Prime type subscription. And mm. for customers who pay for that, I mean, they get a number of things like a million dollar account protection and all these kind of things. But one of the things they get is, um, you know, reduced fee trading, basically. And uh, that's something we're sensitive to as well for our power users, basically. Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase. Thank you so much for uh, coming on Oddlots. We've uh, wanted to have you for a long time. I'm, I'm thrilled we finally made it happen. It was great. Yeah, this was great. One of the best uh, set of questions I've, I've had in a while. Tracy, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I'm glad we were finally able to do it. And uh, I guess kudos to Brian for coming on and answering our questions in the midst of a deep crypto winter. Yeah, it is interesting. There's just the myriad regulatory things right Mm. now. And I have to say, I do have sympathy. And I've heard it from other people in the industry, particularly with this idea, because it's one thing to like go to the SEC and wanting to clarify rules around securities and not getting any answers. But then you also hear uh, entities in the industry and they're like, no, we didn't even want to launch until we were sure we'd be on the right side of the law. And then like, they're still in like pre-launch phase three years later while other people have made right. You get I, punished for engaging, I, whereas if you don't ask questions and just launch, sometimes that's better. Yeah, and then the only thing that, you know, they do go after things like the Kim Kardashian token, which was not that big. And so it's like, you know, I, I, I have uh, some sympathy, I feel like, for entrepreneurs on this particular point within the industry. I mean, I do think the lack of regulatory clarity is worth discussing, but the argument for why a regulator might want to do that is because, well, if you start imposing all these rules or unveiling all these new rules, then you de facto legitimize it. And maybe, maybe they don't want to do that. But, you know, if they don't want to do that, then they should also maybe come out and say that because it is... I don't know. But like I said, and it is definitely true that a lot of people lost money. Like, I do think there is perhaps this view that we should take it more as a win, that the collapse of FTX didn't have like a broader macro contagion, especially, you know, given what we saw in 2008 when the collapse of shadow banks then had this huge impact. And so like this idea of bringing it in the perimeter, like 
Maybe there are some perpeners we want to keep it out of. I don't know. People Lots lost money, but at least the financial system yeah, didn't collapse. That's yeah. like the best we can hope it's, for nowadays. It's not terrible. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Brian Armstrong. He's at Brian underscore Armstrong. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts, Tracy and I blog, and we have a newsletter that comes out every Friday. Thanks for listening. for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.